So let's pray. Father, we just bow before you. We know that you are the answer to all the world's problems. And Lord, you know, we know that you came not to condemn the world, but the world through you might be saved. Lord, we were once very rebellious, but you opened our eyes. We pray you'd open the eyes of our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, Lord, our government leaders that don't know they're asking for a showdown with you. They think that you don't exist, or they think that you uh, are okay with certain things. And Lord, but you are a God that is holy. You change not, but you are full of grace and mercy and compassion. We pray you'd open the eyes, and people that are fearful would fall at your feet. People that are rebellious would ask for your mercy. People that are hurting would be healed by you. In this room, revive us, refresh us, restore us, renew us. We pray you do a work in us that only you could do. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. We need strength if we're weak. Heal those who are sick. Those who are at home right now or watching online, you would heal those that are sick. Lord, we ask for a work of your Spirit here and around the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Turn with me to where we were at last week, kind of a part two, if you will. Matthew chapter 25, reading some of the remaining words of this um, 25th chapter. Matthew 25, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we can put one in your hands. Matthew 25, picking up with verse 14, Jesus still speaking. The entire chapter is red letter. Every single word in chapter 25 is the words of Jesus. Not even a preface statement. All Jesus speaking to us. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And he gave five talents. To, uh, he gave five talents to one, another he gave two, and another one, to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had gained, he who had received, gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Do you want to hear that from Jesus someday? Do you want to hear him say, well done. You are faithful with a few things. Isn't it great that Jesus didn't say, you are faithful in 10 million things? He says, just a few. I'm so glad because I'm only good at a few things. I'm not even good at a few things. But I can be faithful at a few things. Isn't that good to know? He didn't say you were amazing at a few things. 
Those of you that are moms or dads and you just say, I just, someday it's like putting one foot in the front of the other. Sometimes that's what faithfulness is. Just being there. Just saying, the best I can get, I can fix you oatmeal. Here it is. That's all I got the strength for. But it's faithfulness. Consistency equals what? Maturity. We talk about this a lot here. Faithfulness. He goes on. He who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Same statement. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here's what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and you lazy servant. In verse 28, he says, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. He's ultimately thrown out in verse 30, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just kind of condensing it for the sake of time. That servant is thrown out into everlasting darkness. What a sobering statement. And Jesus says two things. Number one, you were afraid. Number two, you were lazy. Well, he says he was afraid, and Jesus doesn't deny that. He says, you were not faithful. You were lazy. You ignored everything that I said. Now, the last portion here, we'll just go ahead and take a look at it all together. The last portion here is found in verses 30. 1 through verses 46. And it, it's not a parable. There was two parables. Last week we covered, uh, we looked at the wise and foolish virgins. And then you have the parable of talents here. They're both parables, but this last section is not a parable. It's Jesus giving an illustration of the very end of the age in, for a second, he talks about sheep and goats. But then he moves to actual people, and it's really a vision of the future. You're literally seeing what judgment will look like when Jesus starts to give people an account of their life. It's not a parable at all. It's really kind of an eye into the future. So take a look with me. He says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him. So that's not a parable. This is literally Jesus saying, you're going to see this. All the holy angels will be with him. He'll sit on his throne in glory. Not a parable. This is Jesus saying, You're, this is, I will be sitting on a great throne, and all the angels will be around me, and all, I'll come in all my glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, verse 32. He'll separate them from one from another as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And again, you just have uh, an illustration there. Set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left, and the king will come and say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you drink? And uh, People that were walking with the Lord, that were disciples, were like, we were just doing this, but when, when did we touch you personally, Jesus? And then he 
he says in verse 38, when did we see you as a stranger? Or they continue to say, when did we take you in and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus said, that was me personally. That hospital visit, working with those children, going and helping that single mother, going and saying, I'm going to go to that Bonaire uh, ministry. I'm going to minister to those incarcerated kids, 90% of them from single-parent homes, most of them from horrible situations. I'm going to go minister to them. I'm going to take time out of my day. And Jesus said, every time you did it to them, you did it to me personally. It's the only way you're going to touch Jesus is through the people on this earth. And when you get to heaven, you get to touch him Literally, his hands, you'll see him face to face. But right now, it's through the ministry that he's given us to actually touch lives. In verse 41, he'll say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirstier? Uh, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. And he'll answer them, saying, As surely I say, and as much as you did not do it to one of these, the least of my, uh, one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you would speak by your Spirit through your word. Remove me once again from this equation. Lord, that even myself, as I'm sharing, I'm just hearing from you. We're hearing from you. These are your red letter words, Jesus. You want us to hear these. These were the last, this was the last message you preached three days before the cross. Other than the Passover meal, Lord, these were the words that you left with the church that we would understand how you wanted us to operate until you returned. And Lord, we just ask that you would Give us your wisdom, soft hearts, pliable hearts. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You see the title of uh, our time in the Word this morning, our response and reward. Everyone's going to have a response to Jesus. To make no response is to have a response. Amen? People say, well, I'm just going to wait and put off and, and not have, I'll think about it. Well, you're making a response because you don't know if you have tomorrow, right? But all of us have made the response. If you're born again, you've already come to Jesus. But... Even as, after we've come to Christ, he continues, continually bids us to grow in Christ. Amen? He's always saying, hey, it's time to continue to grow. Put a little more fertilizer on our life. That we see these things that, that our two talents become four and that our five become ten. And that we're ready for that day. Jesus concluding here the Olivet Discourse. And again, I put this picture up last week. I took this when we were in Israel last year. That is the Mount of Olives. Uh, that's looking from the Temple Mount area, not exactly the Temple Mount, it's the south end of the temple. You know, we're all actually between the Temple Mount and the City of David, which is on the lower end of Jerusalem, but it's looking from between the City of David and the Temple Mount. There's a little like gap in between where the steps go up into the temple, and you're looking back at the Mount of Olives, but they, the disciples were seated up there where these trees are. If you kind of take a look, uh, they would have been seated in probably in this area here because they're looking... Uh, right back across the valley there uh, at the temple. And Jesus is seated there on the Mount of Olives, 
known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, facing that magnificent temple that Herod built, which Jesus prophesied in the 24th chapter was going to be destroyed, which no one could imagine. That would be like us, you know, and Jesus standing here and talking to us and say, hey, in your lifetime, the Pentagon will be gone, uh, Empire State Building will be gone. It's not even so hard for us to think anymore because once we saw the Twin Towers go down, we know anything's possible, right? But Jesus made that statement about the temple, and everyone was like, what in the world? How is that possible? It's taken many years to build the temple, and the monolithic stones, some of them are just enormous. Some of them are the, uh, almost the length of half of this wall, and they're thousands of pounds, and so how is this possible? But here in this Olivet Discourse, it's the end of a powerful message that takes us all the way to the end of the age. You notice that Jesus took us all the way to the end of the age when he said, I'll come in glory with all of my angels. And why would he preach this message three days before the cross? Why would he preach this message? Because the apostles were going to be the first pastors they were going to have to go out and plant the church. And it was intended for them and for us to live wisely and fruitfully to multiply. Two talents to four talents, five talents to ten talents. No matter what age we are to continue to grow or what age we live in, would this message preach well in the year 1918? Or the year 518. Of course, no matter what age you're in, this message is perpetual. And here on this closing uh, of this discipleship series, which coincides with our ministry Sunday, uh, it's Jesus himself expressing his desire for the heart of ministry and discipleship and obedience, which is good, which is a really good thing, that it's Jesus who is leading us, training us, and making us disciples. Aren't you glad Jesus is the one training us all? The one leading us all? We're not following our own rule book. I couldn't write something of any value, but Jesus said, just follow what I've said. So we pick up with scenes 2 and 3 here in chapter 25, which gives us both a pointed exhortation, but also an encouragement. I, I, chapter 25 does not scare me. Because I love the Lord. I'm in Him. I, I, I know I have more to do, but if He calls me today, I believe I've been doing what He's called me to do. I'm, he's not going to say, well done, good, perfect servant. We talk about that a lot around here. But, he, but faithfully, you've been doing what I've asked you to do. But there's also a serious warning here, isn't there? Serious warning. How many of you would like to know if you were in Virginia Beach and a tsunami was coming, you would prefer to know that? So serious warnings are not a bad thing. They're a helpful thing. If you really love someone, you warn them. If you really loved your kids and you knew for a fact that if they were two and they drank that, they could die, would you warn them and say, well, just try it out. Hope it all works out. No. Jesus loves us enough to warn us. But the emphasis here is that if you look at it from what we're looking at, discipleship, the emphasis here is that the true followers of Christ will be doing the work of disciples. Did you hear that? The true followers of Christ will be doing the work of disciples. They'll be investing in the kingdom of God. They'll be loving with the love of God in tangible ways. You notice he says at the end of the age, 
You fed. You visited. You ministered. Tangible. Not Christians in name only, but Christians that follow Christ indeed. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The word Christian is mentioned how many times in the Bible? Three. Three times the word Christian. The word disciple, more than 250 times. Along with additional terms, you might recognize some of these other terms that we as believers, one is believers, saints, servants, elect, followers, children, brethren, pilgrims, also mentioned three times, beloved, 50 times, and others too, but just, uh, just we have other terms. But disciple, if you listen to all those terms, disciple, 250 plus times. Looking back at our text here, Jesus comes to the kingdom of heaven like a man traveling to a far country. He comes to these, uh, these uh, servants, and they each are given talents. And so we have these three servants. They were given five talents, two talents, and one talent, respectively. Now, the talents are financial in nature, but everything that's financial, you're paid a paycheck based on your time and effort. So even finances always is a representation of work or effort. Would you agree with that statement? That you're not paid just because you are handsome or so you're good looking at, well, you, I guess you're a model or something. You could get that. But generally speaking, you're paid for the effort. And so the paycheck represents the work. So, but he starts off, they're given an amount, seed money to invest, five talents, two talents, one talent financial nature, but it represents the stewardship of our lives uh, related to using our time, our talent, and our treasures for Christ, or with, with the one servant who was not wise at all, or potentially ignoring his kingdom and his will, even though we know what a foolish choice that is. I don't ask, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I did, I would hope all of you would go straight up. If I said, is Ignoring Jesus' commands, a wise or foolish thing. I would hope all of you would say that's really foolish. Just ignore it. Just to put it off. Lastly, we have the scene at the end of the age where Jesus refers to those that are on his right hand, which he calls righteous or sheep, versus those on his left hand, which he calls cursed or goats. Those are the terms he uses. So they say, well, that's not politically correct. I don't know. They ought to take it up with Jesus. That's what he said. And in the future moment, Jesus will command the righteous, which I would say are all disciples, for their, he'll commend, I'm sorry, uh, command them, he'll commend them, he'll commend them for their care and their compassion. But then he will, to those that are cursed, he will dismiss them because their apathy and their disinterest towards the hurting, which ultimately was a disinterest to who? Towards Jesus. They had no interest in Christ himself. And especially, he's speaking of those that are hurting in the body of Christ. If you do not have a love for your brothers and sisters, that's not a good thing. We should have a love for one another. And there's no middle ground in these scenarios, and particularly in the parables, and we looked at the wise and foolish versions last week. Everyone in the parables, if you look at the three parables, well, there's actually one in chapter 24 as well. I'm speaking of two in chapter 25 here. But if all the parables, 
it seems as if everyone starts off in the same room, so to speak. Does that make sense? Remember the wise and foolish virgins? They seem to have the same interests. The, the talents, all three servants are kind of there together, kind of getting their marching orders together, but one ignores and two say, we're going to get to work. We're going to do what you've asked us to do. And it does appear that Jesus is unequivocally saying that genuine conversion produces spirit-filled, servant-hearted, compassionate discipleship living. In other words, if you're really converted, eventually you will become a compassionate, serving, servant, disciple of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that all that happens immediately. I've worked with, I've been saved, it'll be 25 years coming up in June. I've worked with many new believers, and I've seen all different rates of growth. People do not grow at the same rate. So you've got to be careful and say, well, this person, you know, they're, they're, not at, you know, they're not growing at the same rate as this person. People don't grow at the same rate any more than babies grow at the exact same rate, any more than people do. So I'm not saying all that happens immediately, but we all start out as infants. We all start out as tiny little seeds of new birth that need to grow, that need to be discipled, and need to be cultivated. That's why I have to do my job. The Lord put on my heart back in June, do this discipleship series. Well, a lot of our people are already saved. God says, that's okay. They need to be cultivated and grow some more, myself included. Just, just, just doing this series helps me grow. Hopefully it helps you as well. But if the heart has been changed, eventually serving Christ will follow. Does that make sense? If the heart has really been changed, eventually serving the Lord will follow. That said, Jesus is making it clear that nobody should be fooled with a church life that doesn't eventually manifest in communion with the Lord, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a readiness for his return, and a stewardship of following the things that he has commanded. Again, this isn't perfection. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. Does that make sense? Direction is the way you're walking. Perfection is that you're doing it perfectly. None of us are doing it perfectly, but are you walking in the direction that the Lord has set? It's a faithful applying, and it's all by grace. It's saying, Lord, I'm going to apply. I was praying this morning about, as I teach, Lord, I'm going to go up and I'm going to teach these things. Give me the grace to do it the way you want it done. All my job is just to put my feet moving and then God says, I'll take care of the rest. You have to apply what the Lord has placed before you. And when you think about just that faithfulness, that applying, it would just being faithful to do what you've been asked to do. After all, this is the passage. This is the very passage where we find twice these words, which I know you've heard many, many times, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the chapter it's the only chapter in the Bible those words are used. Did you know that? Every time you've ever heard anyone use it, they are only quoting Matthew chapter 25. It's only in this chapter. It's referenced two times by Jesus. Now, it's a similar phrase over in Luke chapter 19, but it's not the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's only found in Matthew chapter 25. This is the passage. And again, he doesn't tell them they're perfect. But he does use these precise words of faithful. So as we wrap up this 10-week discipleship series, 
and what's really been a refresher. If you've been saved any length of time, you say, yeah, I've heard a lot of these things over the years. Matter of fact, I'm trying to live these things, but it's been a refresher for you. Maybe it's been a reminder. For all of us, it's been a training of our calling as believers and as a church. And as we think about the ministry responsibility and the ministry capacity, why do I say that? How many think that you have more headroom to grow in your life? No matter how old you are, you actually think you have more headroom. Say, I really have not arrived. I've, I've figured this out. I have not arrived. I actually can be a little more loving, a little more patient, a little more effective, a little more faithful. But think about that. If you take the whole room, that, that takes the whole headroom. The capacity of the entire church has a lot of headroom. That's just, just each person, that exponential work across many of us. So we have the responsibility, but also the capacity that we have as a church family. And here on Ministry Sunday, we want to close and look at these things, which these, in Matthew 25, we could say they are imperatives from Jesus. He's not, he's not saying, hey, think about this. If you think it's a good idea to invest in the kingdom, if you think it's a good idea to kind of do these things, no, they're imperatives <clears throat> to his church and to every believer to be in relationship with him, to be ready for his return, to be obedient, to be committed. It's so hard to find people willing to commit to anything these days. I was reading Barna's uh, recent uh, study on the church. They just kind of published it earlier this year, and it's, it's talking about how, you know, very few people are, uh, we, we don't have a church membership because the mainline denominations still you actually become a member of the church. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I have pastor friends that are pastors of mainline denominations. I actually think in many respects membership is a good thing, but Calvary Chapel wasn't born that way when Pastor Chuck planted the first one in Costa Mesa. and how it, So we, don't, we have a kind of, you vote with your feet and your heart, and you, you just know who really is, is in. But, but we're talking about how less and less people are actually willing to commit to membership. But the, the funny, it said, but they said, what the funny thing about that is less and less people are willing to commit to anything in America anymore. That, that all across the board, I mean, you're finding this with every organization. It doesn't matter if it's the Kiwanis Club. It doesn't matter if it's the Boy Scouts. It doesn't matter if it's anything. That people are very non-committal. But Jesus is still calling a committed people. Amen? Jesus is not changed in any way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So... Uh, faithful, compassionate, caring. These are all the things that are imperatives that Jesus is speaking to us with. <clears throat> and these, these marks are marks of a love for Christ and obedience to Christ. And they are evident and they're observable in disciples. Jesus said it this way in another passage. He said, you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. You've never picked an orange off a tree and thought, this is going to taste exactly like a cucumber. Right? Unless you were born yesterday, you knew that an orange is going to taste radically different. You'll, you knew what the fruit was. It's pretty simple. We won't know everything, but Jesus said you'll know what fruit buds look like. I almost always, and maybe you can um, see this in your own Christian walk, I almost always know when I'm talking to a disciple of Jesus. If I meet a person for the first time or I've met them a hundred times, I almost always know if I'm talking to a disciple of Jesus. 
I'm sure I could be mistaken either way. But for the most part, I'm sure that there could be a Judas that could fool us all. Amen? I know they're out there. I'm sure there's a Judas in you know, every city that could fool us. But for the most part, nine out of ten times, you know when you're talking to a disciple whether they're really young in Christ and still immature in the faith or after years of following Christ, it's readily apparent if they're building their lives, their priorities, their habits on Christ. If they're building on the rock versus building on sand. You meet lots of people, and you can tell their life's built on sand. Just listen to what they talk about. And then I meet someone, and I say, they might not be the Apostle Paul yet, but I can tell they're an apostle. I can tell they're a disciple. You can tell that his word... And his instructions is what they've built their life on and what they're built, currently building their life on. Again, individual believers may be at different levels, different spiritual maturity, different gifts, but you'll see the same heart for Christ. Amen? You'll still see that heart for Christ. I don't care if they're a Calvary Chapel person or a Baptist down the street or uh, Assembly of God. You'll know when you meet a disciple. It's my prayer and that of our leadership here, that every single man in this church, every single woman in this church, every young person in this church is not just an attendee of CCR, but a servant. I know that's what Jesus desired. You read the end of chapter 25. You know what he's looking for at the end of the age. Were you a servant? He's not going to say, I checked, and you went to CCR a lot. That was awesome. You're good to go. You didn't visit anybody, didn't help anybody, didn't do anything, but you were at CCR, so you're good. You're good. It, it, it kind of gives you this extra pass. No, there's no hall pass. I want, Jesus wants everyone to be a servant, everyone to be a disciple until he returns. And the more servants we have, the more we can all learn, rest when we need rest, because we talked about that. We'll, we'll take a look, quick look back at the, the remaining things in discipleship, but we'll be able to serve and that every person... In all the areas that Christ spotlights in our walk, every area that Christ spotlights in your walk, my walk, that we would see collectively in a, in a congregation this size, that everyone would move, depending on where you're at today. That let's say you are in the sporadically available category. That God would move you from sporadically available to what I would call helpful. And then he would move people that are helpful to the dependable category. And he moved people from dependable to spirit-filled. Not just dependable, spirit-filled. Paul was dependable and spirit-filled. But he would write letters, say, here's some. That he goes, I can't believe there's some that are not doing anything among you. They were sporadically available. They had to be moved from category to category. And that's a growth. It's a, uh, the person that's filled with the spirit is filled with love and filled with power for what? for service, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That we would all be also, not only would be disciples and servants, but we'd be ready for Jesus to examine our lives. That I don't know about you, but Jesus examines my life all the time. I, I'm not waiting till the judgment seat of Christ for an examination. How many of you get, uh, you know, you go get an annual physical? Well, that's once a year. Jesus examines us daily, constantly, continually saying oh, that we're ready to be examined now and he's always going to course correct us 
But we're also ready if he calls us home or the rapture of the church comes and we have that final assessment that we're ready either way. Amen? That we're ready to be examined tomorrow on Monday and again on Tuesday and again on Wednesday. And it's a healthy thing because he actually tweaks us in a good way. But we're also ready should he call our number and bring us home. That we're soft and pliable today, but at the same time we have a confidence that we'll give an account in his presence someday, that we'll hear the words, faithful. And so I want to briefly touch on and just close out this series with a quick look back at the nine discipleship areas that came after. We looked last week just for uh, a little bit on the Word and on prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to close looking at the nine discipleship areas that came after the Word, prayer, and the Spirit. And let me say this. I know I'm being purposefully redundant. I know that. The Apostle Peter in his final letter expressly stated three times in chapter 1 that he was reminding them even though they already knew it intellectually. Because intellectually is not good enough. Right? Peter said, I know you know these things. I know you know this. I'm reminding you. I'm reminding you. I'm reminding you. Uh, The things he was reminding, but he was exhorting them to apply it. Exhorting them to apply it. Right? Almost everyone you meet knows they should have a little less sugar, get to bed on time, all these things. But that doesn't mean people are doing it. They know it. They absolutely know these things. But you need someone to kind of exhort you and say, let's do it together. You can do this. Let's, I'll help you do it. Hey, I'll, 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 I'll kind of sign up with you and, and help. Let's help keep each other accountable and committed to these things. Um, so I know I'm being a little redundant, but... It's for a good reason that we would actually say, Lord, we're going to let these things sink in and apply them. When I was in marketing before I went into full-time ministry, uh, it was common knowledge. It's been around since the, uh, I would say, all the way back, I want to say the 1930s. Uh, But it's been common knowledge that people need to hear or see something about seven times before they really take notice, generally speaking. Um, Much less take action. That's just to take notice. But we got bombarded by redundant slogans, by continual messages on social media, by commercials, by advertisement that have zero value. We can sing commercials. We don't even know why we're singing them, right? Like, Why am I singing this song about arthritis? I don't even care about this. Because you know? you've heard it that many times, right? The jingle is in your head. You probably have one pop in now. Sorry about that. But, uh, but if we live these principles out, It'll change us. It'll change the world around us. And Jesus will someday say, because you responded well, here's your reward. Because you responded well, here's your reward. Because you responded well, one by one, person by person. Did you notice that he said in the future, this was not, that when he said in the parable that someday you'll be ruler over many, that part is not a parable. That will come in the millennium reign of Christ. That part will come. If I serve well, I might be living in the Middle East and you know, doing something for the Lord there, or somewhere, Africa, Asia, whatever. And Jesus will send us, you, you right now, what you're doing now is what Jesus says, all right, I'm going to take what you planted, and that, you didn't plant much. He who sows little will reap little, right? He sows much will reap much. Right now, he says, this is it. You get this opportunity to leave it all on the line for me. And so 
We want to uh, hear him say, well done someday. But not just individually, but also to us as a church. That he would be able to say it now in 2020 with 10 months left of the year and people afraid of all kinds of stuff, that he would say, but you guys have stayed the course. Remember, he writes two churches as well in Revelation. He writes to seven churches, doesn't he? He doesn't write just to individuals. He also writes to churches. So he cares about what we're doing as a body as well as what we're doing individually. Well, let's take a look as we close out this series. I just want to briefly touch on each of these and just give you a reminder as we kind of come down the stretch and we get back into our Hebrew study next week. And hopefully, as we get back into a verse-by-verse study of Hebrews, these things we're applying as we see them in our text week by week, and we go back and say, hey, Lord, help me to stay faithful to these things. Number, number four on our list, we did one, two, and three last week, just by way of reminder. We're committed to being disciples and making disciples. And that, again, it starts in the heart. Say, Lord, it's a simple prayer. Jesus, I am your disciple. I pray it all the time. I pray it daily. Lord, you know I'm your disciple. Help me as I go out to be planting seed, to be making disciples, to be investing in lives. Uh, I will take time away from study you know, for investing in men and discipling men because if they grow, then they'll multiply. They'll invest in others. It's very important. But we can't be a... Uh, we can't make a disciple unless we are first being one. And neither can happen unless there's commitment. So it has to be a commitment. We have to say, Lord, I'm not, I'm not going to flinch from this. I'm just simply going to say, Lord, I'm committed. Help me to keep the commitment. Help me to keep the commitment. He will, as he says in 2 Timothy, I know whom I believe in and persuade that he will help me keep that which I've committed. You make a commitment. Jesus will help you keep it. The next one was to love each other as family and to seek to grow uh, in fellowship. And Jesus said, this is how everyone's going to know that you're my disciple. Remember, as he says, I was in prison and you did not visit me. Much of that, the majority, the weight of that statement is the body of Christ ministering to other believers. But it totally applies to us ministering to non-believers too. But I'm saying if you look at the, the, the real context of it, when Jesus says, you're ministering unto me, we see that the primary focus there is that the church truly does have a love for our brothers and sisters and that we bear each other's burdens, that we wouldn't just say, yeah, so-and-so, boy, they're having it rough. Uh, I'm praying for you. And that's about it. But actually, you saddle up beside them and say, how can I help you? Well, I definitely want to pray with you, but what else can we do? Can we help in this way? And so uh, we love each other like family. Those of you that have a family, and, and we're, we're, we're assuming here a good family situation. God desires his family to be in a good, a good place. But you really would help each other. One person's down sick, you jump in and, and say, hey, I'll, I'll grab that. I'll pick up the groceries. I'll, I'll do what I can to fill that gap, to fill that need. Um, it's very important, though, as becoming a family and building the relationships, to remember it's never going to be convenient. It's never going to be easy. It requires patience. The people who will offend you and step on your toes the most are the people in your own house. Husbands and wives, you know what I'm talking about, right? That will let you down the most, but will also help you the most. Isn't that interesting? They probably forget more things, but they also do more things. And so family says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive the areas you miss 
and love you and invest in you, and it'll be worth it. And it's a light to the world because the world is very, very hard on each other and very unforgiving. And we're to be forgiving. We're to be those that are gracious. The next one that we looked at, we share the gospel locally and beyond. You know, uh, it's, it's time for, you know, one of the things that I think everyone here is, is, is say this week, one person, I'm going to share my faith with one person this week. One person, I'm going to say something about Jesus. One person, I'm going to invite to church. Just share the gospel. It is written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace to say, Lord, use me to open my mouth. I open my mouth for a lot of dumb things. Lord, let me open it for something that matters for eternity. We want to have a light that shines here, but also abroad. We've got a mission trip coming later this year to Guatemala, and we've, we support uh, missions in India. We support missions in Africa. We support missions in Central America. Why? Because we not only care about what God is doing in our next door neighbors and the communities around us, but also what God is doing around the world. God so loved the world. So we have a gospel-centered mindset that we're, a, we're aware that the person we're talking to at Starbucks may need Jesus, but we're also praying for souls halfway around the world. Amen? I hope when you're praying for the coronavirus, you're praying for all the world. Not just Americans, but all the people that are in danger. You're praying for, this could be the open. Think of what's about going on in Iran right now. This could be the opening of a massive revival in Iran. Did you know they released thousands of Christians out of prison because everyone's sick and they can't, they can't really persecute them right now, so go. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? They, the guards are afraid to touch anybody, so we can't beat you, so get out of here. Did you know that happened in the last two weeks? That is an amazing thing. The gospel is going forth. That should excite you to say, if God can do that in Iran, why am I so afraid of saying the gospel to the barista at Starbucks? You're not in prison, right? So we share the gospel. Number uh, seven, we gather to worship and praise and song. We were worshiping this morning. It's so important that so many times the Bible says to sing unto the Lord, extol his praises. But we also do it together because our souls need refreshing collectively. Uh, the enemy is thwarted when we gather together. Worship unites us, just like prayer unites us. It's important that we gather. Uh, prayer is the most important thing that we can do in a gathering. That's where Pentecost was born, out of a prayer meeting. But worship is right there, too. It's, it's one of those things that we, we sing to the Lord. Uh, right at the end of the Passover meal, Jesus, they sung a hymn, and then they went to the mountain. We're right down into the Garden of Gethsemane. Very important. That, but you also have a worship in your own personal life, but we will continue to sing to the Lord together. You know, they don't sing in mosques. Did you know that? There's no singing in a mosque. We have a reason to sing, brother and sister. We have a reason to sing. We sing because we're praising God. The Bible says he's put a song in our hearts. Amen? Did you know you're going to sing in heaven? It says they sing the song of Moses there. And so all of these things are coming. We're practicing for that end of the age. It's very important that we continue to worship the Lord together. Uh, number eight, we're grateful and thankful God's called us to serve. Um, when you don't feel like serving, just start thanking God that you get to serve. Because many times, in fact, probably the majority of the time, you will not feel like it. You know? It's not going to be like sitting on a Caribbean white sand beach serving Jesus. 
but you say, thank you, Lord, that you are counting me able and worthy to do it. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, 14, 15, if you if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. I've never washed any of your literal feet. I've never really considered doing it. I've seen some ministries do this at you know, retreats and things like that, and uh, I've seen people do it. But remember, we talked about that this, in the biblical context, was the lowest-ranking job of the lowest-ranking servant in the house. So if you had 10 servants, the bottom rung, the, the, the number 10 lowest servant of the rung got that job. And you had people that had, you know, bunions and blisters and all this, and dust and mud and all that stuff. And this was their job. And Jesus said, I did this to show you I went that low. Why will you not go lower for me? That's what he's saying. And then do it with a thankful heart. I have the quote up here from Warren Wearsby, God is as concerned about the servant as he is the service. Always say, when we do the service, God's looking at the heart of the servant. Amen? Because if we do it with the wrong heart, we get zero credit for it. You ever imagine taking a test and you forgot to put your name on it? Right? You got 100, but I don't know if it was yours. No credit. That would be bad. They, that's the kind of way they grade in the 50s. Today, the teacher would be okay. But, you know, there was a different time. But ultimately, God's looking at the heart of our service. Is it grateful? Is it thankful? Next one, number nine. We take bold and sometimes do steps of faith. Um, we may not be bold, but we become bold with steps. Amen? Say, I don't feel that bold. That's okay. Your boldness comes when you take steps. Feeling bold has nothing to do with it. Being bold is taking the steps. Most steps are always against the backdrop of a little bit of fear and apprehension, and you take them anyway. I'm sure when Peter stepped out of the boat, he had some trembling legs, but was shocked when he hit concrete, firm ground that was actually water. Amen? It's taking those steps. We take those steps. Um, uh, you know, what... We have been doing the uh, uh, Fresh Start Single Moms thing, which, is, which has been a, a healthy chunk added to our budget. And praise God, uh, all of our budget has not been impacted at all. And it should, when I looked at it in the numbers, it should have hit us, but it hasn't. Instead, we've been able to really bless individuals and real kids and moms that need help. And God says, because you took the step of faith, I'll cover all the rest. He goes, you know, you, I really do own it all. Take those steps. Real faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. Say, Lord, I'm weak, but I'm going to take these steps, and we need to take them together. Uh, the Number 10, and we got three left here, and we'll come to a close here. We work strategically as a unified team. Uh, God works by his spirit, but he's strategic, and he causes us to work and be fitted strategically because the needs are great. You know, God's always had a strategic plan. Do you agree with that? God's always had a strategic Even before the foundation of the earth, he had a strategic plan that he was going to send his son. Everything is strategic with the Lord. Um, he wants his disciples to take their place in his plan. There are works prepared for you and me that are separate. Yours are different than mine, but we were all, all prepared. And God says, by his spirit, he will make a remarkable team 
but we have to say, Lord, I'm willing to work within that construct. I'm willing to humble myself and take a part on the team that maybe is a stepping stone. I, I, I feel like my gifts and talents are here, but I'm willing to serve here first. Well, that's strategic. It's strategic that you would actually have a willingness of anyone in, the, anyone in the family or the team, and then the Holy Spirit will activate that willingness, that humility. And the Lord is the one that gives us the plan. Uh, you know, we're not wise enough. We pray, say, Lord, we're going to take your word, but then guide us. I mean, we, we spent two straight months on Wednesday, Wednesdays only praying. That was, that was the Lord's guidance, and I think the Lord's blessed it in a number of ways. I could, I could point them to you. I just don't have the time. But God, then out of that, will give us a strategic plan. What if there really was a massive outbreak of coronavirus? I believe God will give us a, a strategic plan. But then within that plan, it's the work of his spirit. Amen? It's not just a plan. Anyone can come up with a plan, but is it God's plan, and is it led of the spirit? Number 11, we give generously as God has given to us. And wow, do we have a generous God and Savior. Amen? Uh, just the giving of God makes it so much easier for us to give generously. Uh, the world says the more you take, the more you have. But Christ says the more you give, uh, the more you are. Frederick Buchner. Uh, we've really seen this, again, as I mentioned uh, just some of the steps that we've taken as a ministry. God has blessed them, and we've really seen that, that he waters and adds to our willingness to give, our willingness to be generous, to be faithful with tithes and offerings. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't even pass an offering plate here. You've never seen one. There's a, there's a box that you can barely find over there, and there's a box you can barely find out. And we, don't, we, we depend on people having a giving heart and surrendering and say, Lord, I give to you the same way I give you my worship, my time, my prayer life. We just depend that people are going to say, Lord, I'm going to give back and God's going to bless it. And then lastly, we talked about this um, two weeks ago. Uh, we embrace the gift and need of scriptural rest. Uh, we know that we live in a society that is trying to max everybody out to the place that you are frazzled on every nerve. And we're not trying to do that as a ministry. We, if, if, we have to take some, you know, if we have to take a month off of something, we will. We'll say, Lord, if you said, hey, no, don't do that for a month. Just give people a rest. You know, like a lot of times in August, we'll give the whole month of August off for our children's ministry workers so they can not in any way come on a Wednesday night. Uh, who knows? One year we might do it on Sundays where... They get a Sunday off, and just everybody. No, no children's ministry at all. Uh, that would mean more work for you as parents, but you would be blessing other people to get rest. So uh, sometimes you need rest. Sometimes the other person needs rest. And this is where, again, we're, where we love as a family, we actually care about the other person just as much as ourselves. Uh, many times I might need rest, but I would rather at that time make sure my wife gets rest. And then after she gets rest, then she can make sure I get rest. Because sometimes we can't rest at the same time. Amen? You ever had this? Sometimes both people can't rest at the same time. So one person says, I'll rest. You ever seen this with military? I'm on watch. You sleep. And when you're done sleeping, you'll be on watch. Right? That's the way it works. So there has to be that teamwork again. But ultimately, as leadership, we have to understand 
that we don't max people out that they actually are able to rest, but also you learn to rest, and you learn to say, I'm not going to add 8 million things to my life. I'm going to simplify my life a little bit so I can rest well but serve Christ well because we rest to go and be sent out. The whole reason we rest is that we would be sent out with renewed strength and renewed passion. Jesus saved us simply because of his grace. And why? Because he loved us and does love us. And he now reminds his disciples to uh, continually change us and to shape us and to fill us so he can use us, so he can empower us, so he can uh, send us out with the same grace and the same love that we share with one another, but also to a lost and dying world. That's why the whole reason Jesus saved us was obviously to keep us from a future separated from him and hell, but also that we take that same love and share it with one another and everyone else. And everything we do, uh, everything we do at CCR is following his leadership, his priorities, his training. We simply want to follow his lead and follow the Holy Spirit that is then working in us and through us. We're not looking to create. You know, I, I see a lot of things today that, that uh, a lot of ministry are trying to create some new ideas. And sadly, many of their new ideas are non-scriptural. And people say, wow, that's amazing. It's drawing quite a crowd. You know that Jesus in his letter to the church is warned about that, that some of, the, some of the crowds were dead as a doornail. Jesus said, I want you perfectly trained. Don't, don't come up with a new manual, is what he's saying. Amen? Don't come up with a new manual. Work the manual I gave the apostles in the book of Acts. It's the same manual. It's the same Acts chapter 2. It's the same teaching that he gave in Matthew 25. He doesn't say, now swap it out at the end of the age so you're super hyper-relevant. I know how to relate to people. That's a really mis misused term. You can relate to people. If John the Baptist can relate to people, anyone can relate to people, right? He did not look relevant to the time, and yet he crowds flock to him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that relates to people. The Holy Spirit says, I will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Our, our manual for ministry at CCR is that we're going to be his disciples because he's the one that causes the field to be plentiful, not our brilliant genius ideas. It's going to be the Lord. And so everything we do is that driven by what the Lord has already given us.